invite everyone to take out your Bible this morning, open to Luke chapter 22. This is the word of the Lord. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked And he replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came. Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the, that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you shall be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood me by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just pray for Pastor Matt this morning as he brings the word to us. Father, I pray that you would speak through him. I pray that our hearts would be open to your word and that you would just be with us this morning as he teaches. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So I grew up in a fairly um, liturgical sort of church, and so my Sunday mornings had a kind of a rhythm to them, a commonness to them. And one of the things that I remember uh, growing up in this church is uh, we would regularly come and take uh, the Lord's Supper. And what I remember about these services is I would sit, of course, in the same row every week. But in that same row, um, there would be this time where... uh, there would be silence. So this is usually after the sermon. There would be this time of silence in this liturgical service. And in that silence, they'd encourage you to confess sin. 
And I remember even as a young age, even before I think I actually knew Jesus personally at all, I was uh, fairly petrified because in a moment I was supposed to go up and take the Lord's Supper and they did it how you come to the front and take a little bit of the bread and you dip it into juice. And, and, um, but I would just plea in that time of silence for pardon. I would just plea, Lord, forgive me. I'd, I'd, I'd actually recall all of these horrific things I'd done the previous week, things I've said, and I was just scared to death. And so I would just plead, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me. Then at the end of the silence, the pastor would invite us to pray the Lord's Prayer. And we said transgressions, because um, that's the way it was. And I got that, you know, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us. And I was pleading for that. And then I did, I was kind of petrified as I walked to the front and I, I dipped this bread and received this juice. And I, I, I remember, you know, again, I, didn't, I don't think I knew Jesus when I was doing these things, um, which we'll talk about later. I don't think I should have been taking the Lord's Supper. Um, but there was this like feeling of, did I do it right? Am I okay? And then another week would go by and then this cycle would repeat itself. And I think the more that I've been studying the Lord's Supper and preparing for this message is to know that the gathering at the Lord's table is not a plea for pardon. It is a proclamation of pardon. We come to this table because it is proclaiming something that has been accomplished in Jesus that we receive by faith. You're, I hope that you do prepare your heart before you take the Lord's Supper, but let me tell you, you don't need to be petrified in your seat like I once was. This meal, uh, like some of the Protestant reformers say, this is the tangible and visible word of God preached to you so that you can feel it, taste it, and see it that God is for you in what Jesus has accomplished for you on the cross. It's a proclamation of pardon. So we're talking a little bit about what are the marks of the church what does it mean to be a part of a Christian church? And we've talked in the first few several sermons that a, a true church is a church that's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaiming what is rightly held in the scriptures. When we quit preaching the gospel, when we quit preaching the Bible, we no longer have a church. We have a structure of our own making, which will eventually crumble. But then we started talking about God has given signs and seals of his church, and these are... Uh, the, the, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. So for three weeks, we talked about baptism being the sign and seal of your entrance into God's family. Uh, just by quick reminder, definition of what is a sign and a seal. A sign is a representation of something that is real. A sign is a representation of something that is real. So when you see the Welcome to Marion sign, when you're driving into town, uh, the City is not confined to the square footage of that sign. That is not really Marion. That is a sign that says there is this place called Marion. In the same way, baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs of something that is real. What Christ has done, who Christ is. Secondly, a seal. A seal is an image stamped on or marked on to an everyday object that gives it value. 
And so again, a coin is a great example. It's just metal until there is a seal, you know, the United States seal. It turns a little bit of metal into something that now has value that you can take to Walgreens. It has value. Well, in the same way, uh, what the Lord Jesus, when he instituted baptism in the Lord's Supper, he takes everyday objects, bread, wine. These are everyday objects. We consume things like this most days. But what he does is he says these objects, when they're celebrated with God's family, they are given a value to them for you. They proclaim to you what Christ has done. They proclaim to you who you are in Christ. And so we receive these tangible and visible objects to, for God to speak truth toward us and then for us to receive in faith. And when that's done, it will nourish you. It will encourage you. So the text that was read to us is what is often called the institution of the Lord's Supper or just the recording of the Last Supper. So this is the meal that Jesus had. It's on the night he's going to get betrayed, the day before he is going to be crucified. And he gathers his nearest and closest followers for this sacred meal. Now it is not accidental or incidental when this meal is occurring. It is occurring during some of the highest points in the history of the Jewish people, the old covenant people of God, the time of the Passover, the time of unleavened bread. You see that in verse 7, chapter 22. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had, been, uh, had to be sacrificed. And Jesus says, go and make preparations. We're going we're gonna to celebrate this meal. Now what's going to happen is he's, he's going to eventually, in many ways, transfer these celebrations and point them to himself. But get ready, we're going to have this meal. So I want to just quickly jump back to Exodus chapter 12 to remember how these Passover and unleavened bread were instituted in the, under the old covenant so that we can understand what God is doing through Christ in the new covenant with the supper that we will take in a few minutes so remembering what's happening in the book of Exodus is God's people, uh, the Hebrew people, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in the land of Egypt. They've been in the land of Egypt for 400 years. They have now be, they're now enslaved by Egyptians. They are, uh, under the, they're in bondage. They are a controlled and beaten people. And God raises up a servant named Moses to come before the most powerful ruler in the world at that time, Pharaoh, and to say those infamous words, let my people go, right? He's calling, and Pharaoh, who are you? And Moses time and time again says, I am a servant of the Most High God. And so a series of plagues, a series of cataclysmic wonders are performed in Egypt to confirm to the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt, your gods are nothing, and our God is true. Our God controls light and darkness. Our, our God controls uh, the, the waters and the beasts and the insects. And we get to the last plague, which is called the plague of the firstborn, where God pronounces through Moses that what's going to happen 
is God is going to make one final statement on who is God and who are God's people. And what this is going to be is, uh, in the middle of the night, a plague of death is going to fall over the entire land. And those people who, in faith, will take the signs and the symbols that God has commanded will be preserved, which is what we'll read in a second. But those who don't believe God, don't receive the signs and the symbols, will die. I want to pick up in uh, verse 1, chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be to you the first month, the first month of your year. So one thing you need to know about the beginning of Passover, when it was first introduced, God tells Moses, by the way, change your entire calendar around. This is a new day for the people of God, right? This is changing the world. This is changing the calendar. Verse 2, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year old, must be year old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. And when all the members of the community of uh, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So, this is a new month, 10 days from now, pick out a lamb, four days after that, select, you're going to slaughter that lamb. The whole community at the same time will do this together. Verse 7, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. And this is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So why these symbols? Eat because... This is a light snack before the journey starts tomorrow. I mean, you're dressed, ready to roll. And the equivalent, you know, would be your your car is packed, you're in your traveling clothes. I always, you know, like to drive in, like, running pants because they're comfortable. You know, the nice elastic because, you know, a long road trip with jeans really hurts. I mean, just the whole idea, you know, the whole idea of being ready to go. So eat this in faith. Do the marks the blood on the door in faith. And be ready to go in the morning. Verse 12, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the one true God. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will will touch you when I strike Egypt. Verse 14, this is an interesting statement. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. What I love about this is he's telling people before it happens, by the way, you're going to celebrate this every year from going forward. 
Right? We're going to celebrate it once, but just so you know, you're going to celebrate this for hundreds of years because it's going to happen. And then he explains what the lasting ordinance will look like. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. And on the first day hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work for all, at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. This is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it is on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. So this celebration has two parts. You have the celebration of the Passover, which is the taking of the lamb and the slaughter of the lamb and the blood over the doorpost, and then the, the eating of the lamb inside the house, dressed, ready to roll. And the second aspect is also on that day, you are going to begin a, a uh, commitment to eat no bread and have no yeast in your home. Usually, most scholars agree, these are the two reasons. One, yeast is something that takes time to rise. So one of the reasons why God is telling the Israelites, don't use yeast, is because if you use yeast, you're actually doubting that you're leaving tomorrow. You don't have time to let bread rise. It's time to leave. So if you were to, that night, pack that yeast in your bread and set it out for some time to go, it'd be like saying, ah, we're really not leaving tomorrow, and I like my bread with just a little more, you know, body to it. And then also throughout Scripture, yeast is the symbol of um, sin or hypocrisy or not fully devoted, not fully clean under the Lord. And so to take the yeast out is to say, we are going to be a holy people. Now, it isn't accidental, right? This is always important to remember. Uh, holiness unto God follows salvation from God, right? So this, act, this symbol of holiness unto the Lord is after you're saved from death by the death of the Lamb. That's a common pattern throughout Scripture. You follow God because he saves you. He saves you, then you obey. You don't obey to be saved. But that's... This is the celebration. It's to be commemorative. It's supposed to be remembered. And then if we come back now to Luke chapter 12, we see Jesus using very similar sorts of language, using some of the symbols that used to be under the old covenant. And now he's saying, no, 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 these are signs of the new covenant. Something is happening. Something is changing in this moment through this person, Jesus Christ. And because of that, there's going to be a new lasting ordinance. We'll focus on verses 19 through 20. He says, Luke records, Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Very similar to what was commanded of the Israelites. Take this now, by the way, you'll keep celebrating this. Deliverance is at hand, celebrate it in advance, and then celebrate it forever. And then he says, in the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Which is poured out for you. So again, I want us to come to the table today, uh, not as a plea for pardon, but receiving in faith the proclamation of pardon. I want to talk about three aspects of the meal. The first thing is to remember, this is a commemorative meal. 
It is a, that's why Jesus is in remembrance of me. This is also why later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, uh, in his letter, first letter to the Corinthians, says this. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 24, the Apostle Paul writes, probably 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So you see the passing on of this commemorative meal. Jesus gives it to Paul. Paul gives it to the Corinthians. The Corinthians give it to us, right, eventually. Passes through the generations. This is a commemorative meal. How, it's important to think about how do commemorative things work? How many of you guys have been to a baseball game? Between the top of the seventh and the bottom of the seventh, there is this thing called the seventh inning stretch. You guys been there? Done this? And they make you stand and they say, all right, all together now, take me out to the ball game. Take me out to the crowd. Now, everybody who hates baseball, they actually like this part of the game. For the first time, they're like, oh, something that's actually enjoyable is happening in this stadium. So what, what happens then? It, it, when you sing that song, like it brings nostalgia of all things good baseball. It makes you think of, it gives you an affection for just the love of the game. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks. Those things don't even taste good, but for some reason we buy them at baseball games because we think it'll make the game more enjoyable. I don't care if I ever get back, so it's root, root, root for the cubbies, right? Just seeing, seeing where your loyalties lie. But here's the thing. There's this, there's this moment where it ties the people together. It produces affections. In many ways, communion to Christianity is what take me out to the ball game is to baseball. These com this commemorative meal is to join us. This commemorative meal is to draw our affections up to the Lord God for us to remember what Christ has done. Listen to this. The habits of our lives shape the values of our hearts. The habits of our lives shape the values of our hearts. Your habits, your daily habits, your weekly habits, your monthly, those are shaping you as people. This is why we know that if you're, if you're in a bad habit, it's not like, oh, I know it's bad, I'll now stop. No, 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 because that practice of that habit over months, days, years, it's shaped your heart. You now love that habit, or you love what you get out of that habit. And so sometimes we can even look at what we're doing, kind of have those out-of-body experiences, and be like, oh, I just wish I wasn't doing that. But our hearts and lives have been shaped by those habits. I just encourage you, when you come to the Lord's table, and partly why this church is moving toward taking the Lord's Supper more regularly together, is we believe the habit of remembering what Christ has done will shape our hearts. This habit should make us love Christ more. It should make us treasure what he's accomplished on the Christ more. It should draw us and unite us as a church more. That's the hope 
We don't want to think less of Christ. We want to think more of Christ because this is a habit that's been instituted by the Lord Christ that we want to take with thoughtful reflection and deep joy because it is proclaiming pardon to us. Second aspect of this meal is it is a new covenant meal. That's exactly what Jesus calls this there in verse 20. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Now, if you are a Jewish person and you hear the expression new covenant, there's like bells and whistles going off in your brain. Because that is a bold proclamation that God is doing something great and mighty in history, something new, something huge. Because you, you don't drop the word covenant lightly to a Jewish person. And these are, this is the intimate contractual relationships with, between God and his people. And he says, this is, a, this is the new covenant. We've already looked at this verse several times in this series, but we'll look at it again. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The prophet Jeremiah, 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, he proclaims that something is coming in the future that will change how God has interacted with his people. Something momentous. Jeremiah 31, 31. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. What covenant did he make with the people when he took them out of the land of Egypt? He instituted the Passover. He instituted the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's, when he gets to Mount Sinai, uh, the Mosaic Covenant, the commands to live under this, these laws. He's talking about that covenant. He says it's not going to be like that covenant that I made with the ancestors when I took them out of the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Why? Because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. The problem with the Mosaic Covenant is it could be broken and not and that it was broken. And then uh, verse 33, Jeremiah goes on and says, well, this is the covenant I'm going to make. Well, what makes it new? This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my law in their minds. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. One of the significant changes through what Christ has done is he is the last and final sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Notice that Jeremiah hints too that this covenant, when it is established in the heart of a person and in a church, it's an unbreakable covenant where you, can, could, be, you could violate the old covenant and be thrown out because of your in fact, that's one of the recurring expressions in the Old Testament, that if you didn't practice it this way or that way, it says you will be cut off from the people of Israel because you broke the covenant. Under the new covenant, it's a proclamation of pardon that cannot be lost, a covenant that cannot be broken when received in faith. 
And so, uh, in fact, if you just want to, this is fascinating a little bit. If you go back to the end of Exodus chapter 12, there's some like closing up instructions about the taking of the Passover and unleavened bread. Verse 43 of Exodus 12 says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident or a hired worker, they can't eat it. It must be eaten inside the home. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may, may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. And the same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigners residing among you. So here's some, some of the connections you need to see, is that uh, to be in Israel, part of the people of Israel, you had to be circumcised. And then in, in order to stay in the people of Israel, then you would obey the Passover and all the uh, commandments to come. When a person becomes a Christian, when they trust Christ in faith, faith, they receive the sign and seal of entrance in. It's not circumcision, it's baptism. And in baptism, it, God's proclaiming to you pardon, forgiven, cleansed, dead in your sin, alive to God in righteousness. He proclaims new life. And then when you come to the Lord's Supper, it's the proclamation of ongoing participation in God's family. And many, we talked about this maybe three or four sermons ago where it's the idea that baptism is like wedding day. And the Lord's Supper is the anniversary. Baptism is, you are now husband and wife. The husband is Jesus. The wife is the church. And then the Lord's Supper is coming back again and again and proclaiming, God has made us one through Jesus Christ. Uh, there was a scholar by the name Edmund Clowney. He served at Westminster Seminary for a number of years. He writes this. He says, through Christ's circumcision and baptism, his righteous love, life, and his offering as God's lamb, the shadows of the old covenant ceremonies became reality. Christ is our circumcision. He is our Passover. And to replace those blood-shedding signs, he appointed new signs for the inclusion and fellowship of the renewed people of God. These sacramental signs are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So this is a new covenant meal. When we receive this root, God has given this forgiving, cleansing, people-making meal, and we become one new family. It's a commemorative meal. It's a new covenant meal. And the one thing I want us to think about at the end here is it's supposed to be a nourishing meal. Uh, it's supposed to satiate us. It's to feed us. Uh, when Matthew records what happens at the Last Supper, he writes this, Matthew 26, 26. He says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then it says in Matthew 26, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins. When we come to the Lord's table, we are supposed to recognize that all of our life comes from Jesus that he is the one who satiates, satisfies our life, and he gives his body and blood to fill us and to feed us. And so when we're taking this meal, I, I don't think it's true theologically that you're actually eating Jesus. 
You're not eating his body. But you are in faith, if you're receiving it rightly, saying, I only live through Jesus. I only am alive through him. Much earlier in his ministry, John 6, 54 and 55, Jesus says this, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Now, just so you know, he is not saying this in the context of the Lord's Supper in John 6. He's just fed 5,000 people this miraculous feeding, and they come back because they're still hungry. And he says, the reason you're hungry is because if you eat that bread, you'll be hungry again tomorrow. But if you come to me and love me and trust me and live by me, you will eat and drink me, and you'll never be hungry or thirsty like that again. He is proclaiming truths to feed our soul. I just want you to know, most of us know this, that sometimes you'll hear a truth proclaimed, and it feeds you, but it only feeds you for a while. If you were dating someone, and that first time they said, I love you, there was a skip in your step for a few weeks after that. The truth of those words They blew you away. This other human person doesn't just tolerate me. They don't just like, they love me, right? Proclaim truth over your soul. It's like, there's a skip in your steps. Same thing that on your wedding day, you are now husband and wife. Those proclaimed words satisfy. The problem is, is those are in contrast to what Jesus says, my food is real. That is, the I love you feels great, but it, 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 does, it goes away. It's not enough. Because even the love of your human spouse or your human girlfriend or boyfriend, it doesn't satisfy. But Jesus can. I was thinking last night, um, you know, Iowa State won a football game for a change. And I, I went and re- I read like two or three articles about their victory. I was living, finding life in the story of, about, you know, 60 football players throwing around a piece of leather. I found life through a few historical events that happened yesterday. When they lose next week, (laughs) I will be reminded that it it isn't real food or real drink to, to try to live through a sports team or a performer or through a friendship or anything. It's to, this meal is to point us to Christ to nourish us. So I want you to think about these things as we, as we move to the table. In 1 Corinthians 11, it tells the church in Corinth, and we'll study this passage in full in two weeks, but in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, do not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. What's interesting, the context of 1 Corinthians 11, what was unworthy about what they were doing was they were coming to the Lord's table with all sorts of hypocrisy. The meal says, I live by Jesus. He alone makes me alive. But what was that church doing? They were running to church. There was a big potluck before the service, and they were eating all the food. They weren't waiting for poor people who had to work a little later. So they're saying, Jesus, I live by you, but I'm going to eat all the food before the more needy people show up. I'm really more satisfied in this meal or in my riches or the ability that I can get to church a little faster than everybody else. And so in that context, what was unworthy was they said... They were honoring God and living by God, but they were just enjoying their pleasures. 1 Corinthians 10, which we'll look at next week more, uh, more 
in depth, the hypocrisy of their eating was on Saturday, they'd go eat in the temples of the idols. They'd participate in these idol celebrations, false gods, and then they'd show up on Sunday morning and eat that meal with that God. And so it's like, how can you say that you are honoring the Lord Jesus Christ when you just honor that pagan God, that false God, that idol? And so here's my question I want you to pray about before you take the supper. What are the rivals to God? What are the rivals to God in your heart? Because I believe that most of us have rivals, and they, they, uh, they change, right? This year it's this thing, and next year it's that thing, and then two years later it's back to the thing that God worked on your heart two years ago. As you come to the table, it's this proclamation of pardon from Jesus Christ, that he is the Lord, he's our only hope, he's our only Savior. And by taking this meal, you're, you're claiming this truth for your life. That's what Jesus has done for me. And yet in your heart, there is the yeast of sin. Right? There's a, uh, you, you, it's mixed. And so I would just encourage you to pray about that. What is the hypocrisy in your heart? Where are there rivals? Where do you look for life other than Jesus? What things other than Jesus Christ are your food and drink? And as you pray, you'll come to things and confess it. And here's the thing. In Christ, you're totally forgiven. So again, this meal is not a plea for pardon. It's a proclamation of pardon. And so you confess and you can know full well Christ has forgiven you. This meal doesn't wash away your sin. Christ washes away your sin. And go receive the meal in celebration of that. But still, let God work on your hearts. One final quote. I read it this morning. I thought it was convicting. Uh, John Piper writes, What the church and the world need today, more than anything else, is to know and love God, the great, glorious, sovereign, happy God of the Bible. A great, glorious, sovereign, happy God of the Bible is the only one that can satisfy your soul. He's the only one who can pour down his sovereign happiness. He's the only one that can meet our deepest needs. And so as you come to the Lord's table today, come professing, I need that, I want that, I believe that Christ has died for me. There'll be two stations set up in the back. And we encourage you, if you know Christ as your Savior and you're walking with him, um, and you're in a right relationship with God's people, you're in a right relationship with God, come and receive. If you don't know Christ yet, if you haven't trusted in him, I encourage you to pray and maybe talk to someone after the service and give your life to Christ. If you're not in a right relationship with someone, maybe work on it this week and come and join the Lord's table next week. Let me pray. Father, I would just ask in your mercy that we would hear truly at the heart level the proclamation of pardon through Jesus Christ through the taking of this supper. That the new covenant has come through the blood of Jesus and we have forgiveness. That we want to remember that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We want to be nourished by this meal. That this meal points to heavenly realities that Jesus is the only one that satisfies. And we live by him and him alone. 
And I pray, Lord, that we would come uh, hearing you preach the gospel to us through these signs and seals of the gospel. We love you. We bless you. We pray that you would now uh, just feed our souls and unite our body through the taking of this meal. In Christ's name, amen.